0: to to listen or you can follow along if you'd like. So this is uh, the story of when uh, Josiah, who was uh, a good king, uh, when Josiah and the high priest Hilkiah, when they rediscovered the Book of the Law and that they had transgressed it. So this is the second half of that story. It says, so Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asahiah went unto Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, that is, the king, Josiah, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall ye say to him, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender and now hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse and has rent thy clothes and wept before me. I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace. And thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word tells us the truth about our relationship with you, that your word rebukes and warns us, and also offers us hope and peace and salvation. We pray, Father, that as we consider your word this morning and how it came to be in our hands, that you would help us to put our hope in Christ, and that you would help us in our worship to come, that we would be rebuked and warned where we need to be, and that we'd be encouraged to follow Christ by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. as you came in uh, there were handouts that you might find helpful it's just notes for the class uh, that would help you follow along if you're interested in getting recordings of the class you can sign up at the welcome center the same sheet that you would use uh, to sign up for the sermons this class of course seeks to answer the question how do we get the bible so over the last several weeks we've been thinking about this biblically and theologically seeing the the divine origin of scripture that because scripture is God's word that it is inspired uh, and that means it's authoritative and that it's inerrant Uh, It is truthful in all that it addresses and it's infallible. It is reliable It's trustworthy as our guide and we've also clarified that these qualities apply in an absolute sense to what was originally written And in a relative sense to all the copies and translations and finally we briefly discuss the preservation from a theological perspective That God has providentially preserved his word through his people being devoted to it uh, through the centuries. So uh, we're continuing uh, a high-level overview of how we got the Bible. These are all lessons that we went through back in March of 2020 and or February and March of 2020. This is the last week of review, Lord willing. Next week we're going to enter into new territory. Um, So we're gonna do another high-flying overview this morning. And this morning, we're kind of transitioning uh, to a new section of the class where we're going to answer this question of how we got the Bible from the Bible's own story. So the stories in the Bible tell us how the Bible came to be. And in the coming, well, today, we're going to, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to try to trace the, the thread of the biblical narrative to see how we got the Bible from the perspective of biblical history. So uh, last week we concluded just by mentioning the characters in that story, right? So we had authors, co-authors, scribes, copyists, compilers, collectors, and translators. Those are some of the main characters uh, that we'll see in this story of how we got the Bible. And so this morning we're going to begin with the beginning. And we're going to start with Moses and trace uh, the Bible's own story of how it came to be through the Old Testament. And we're also going to talk about the Apocrypha and uh, why it's not in our Bibles, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the New Testament. So here we go, starting with Moses. How do we get the Bible? Well, from the beginning, God spoke, right? Our God is a speaking God. He reveals himself to us and communicates with us, and he communicates through writing. So God is a speaking God who speaks to us through writing. We mentioned last week that God himself wrote on the tablets in Exodus 31, 18, and so we see that god is a writing god he communicates through writing and then god told moses specifically to write down several things right to to write down we know we that god wanted moses to write down his redemptive acts so exodus chapter 17 verse 14 says the lord said unto moses write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of joshua For I will utterly put out of the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So Israel has, at this point in the story, just defeated the Amalekites. And God tells Moses to write that down. To write down that saving event for Joshua and for the people. So God tells Moses to write down his redemptive acts. And God also tells Moses to record his covenant communication. So in Exodus 24, God calls Moses to himself, and then Moses returns to the people, and it says in verses 3 and 4, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So Moses hears God's word, and then he writes god's covenant communication to god's word it says just a few verses later in exodus 24 and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people so moses is recording two main things there's two main ways to think about what moses is doing and then this carries on into the rest of scripture moses is recording god's redemptive acts and god's covenantal words to his people we have redemptive acts and covenant communication. So uh, as we'll see in a moment, that, that is the kind of the backbone of Scripture and how Scripture gets written. So what did Moses write specifically? Well, we understand that, for the most part, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes we call those books the Torah, which just means the law. Sometimes we call it the Pentateuch, which is from two Greek words, meaning five scrolls. Um, so in addition to what we've already seen, uh, remember last week uh, in the morning service, we saw that Moses also wrote a Psalm. Uh, he wrote Psalm 90. Um, so we, this is what Moses wrote and Moses was the first to write scripture. Now there, there's more that could be said about that, but we're doing a high level overview. Um, so I'll pause here real quick. Does anybody have any thoughts or questions about Moses? writing those first five books and what he was up to. Okay, we'll keep going. So, as we continue then to see how the Bible got written, we immediately run into an interesting question that revolves around a couple of verses in the Torah, and Chuck mentioned this last week, uh, either about Deuteronomy or Revelation. I think you mentioned Revelation, but it's also in Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And he says something very similar in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So, do these verses mean that there would be no more Scripture written? Uh, as an interesting side note, you know this isn't just a merely academic question. The, the Samaritans of Jesus' day, they are, Only believed or they only followed as authoritative the Torah. They only thought that the books of Moses were their spiritual authority Um, So this wasn't theoretical for Jesus and the Apostles Uh, They don't so the Samaritans did not accept the rest of the Old Testament So how do we how do we think through this? Well, uh, there's a couple ways to answer it Um, I think the most important answer is that exegetically uh, these verses I think are focusing on obeying God's covenant commands so in other words, the, the commands are not to be added to or taken away from. Um, and it doesn't seem to be referring to written scripture as such, but to, but to God's commands. Another possible interpretation, if, if you do take these verses to refer to written scriptures that God says, you shall not add to it or take away from it. But that, that doesn't mean that God isn't free to speak and to keep on writing. So regardless of how you interpret these verses, it's clear that God does continue to speak and not in a haphazard kind of way. God's revelation follows a specific pattern and it's that pattern that we saw with Moses. The pattern of biblical revelation is that redemptive acts and covenantal communication are connected. God's works of redemption and his words of redemption are connected. And that pattern again it's established in moses that that these two things go together um so and and they they complement each other these two principles complement each other so scripture is written to explain god's mighty acts god acts and then scripture explains it and then god's mighty acts also verify the authenticity of god's messengers right so god delivers his people out of Egypt through the Exodus, kind of the salvation moment in the Old Testament. And then he gives the people, the great prophet Moses, to explain what he has just done in delivering them out of Egypt. So God saves them through the Exodus and then he gives them the great prophet Moses to explain what's just happened. And God then, he also lays down the parameters for prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22. He says, if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. So in other words, when a prophet speaks, if God verifies that speech by fulfilling that word, then you know this is, this is a prophet sent from God. And this is how you see God's prophets operating, right? So Elijah in 1 Kings 18 this is how he authenticates himself as God's messenger, as the one speaking for God and as Yahweh being the true God. He speaks and then he says, all right, let's see whose Lord will answer, Baal or Yahweh. You know, and then Yahweh is the one who answers and authenticates Elijah as the real prophet of the real God. So generally speaking, this pattern holds throughout biblical history. So the general pattern of progressive revelation is redemptive acts and redemptive communication or covenant communication so then specifically god continues his redemptive work through joshua the judges prophets priests and kings and then not only is he working redemptively but he's speaking through joshua the judges the prophets the priests and the kings so joshua 1 1 says now after the death of moses the servant of the lord and the author of the first five books of scripture, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, or servant, saying, so the Lord continues to speak to Joshua and through Joshua to the people of Israel. And then the book concludes. Joshua 24, verse 26 says, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So, Joshua, not only did he write down God's words, but it says he added them to the book of the law of God. So Joshua has a self-awareness that God's continued writing is of the same nature and quality of what was previously written by Moses. So he's writing the same material, the same covenantal story of what God's doing in his people. In this pattern of God's redemptive acts and covenant communication, again, it, it continues. So God continues to act and speak through the judges and then through the kings and the prophets. So starting with judges, something very interesting happens. The the perspective of the authors progresses or pivots to focus on the kings. Now that that might be interesting at, at first blush, right? Because judges is actually about the judges, right? But you'll remember that refrain that goes throughout the book of Judges, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. That is repeated over and over and over again. And that's how the book concludes, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, what we can see there, right, is that this Judges is writing about a time before the kings, but it's probably being written during the time of the kings, because it's self-aware that there was no king in Israel when those things were happening. And of course, it, it has this, scripture has this shift towards the kings because of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says that his blessings and his Uh, the blessings of the people are now going to come through David and through David's son. And we can see this not just in Judges, but actually also in the book of Ruth. We might not think of it this way, but the book of Ruth is actually pointing towards David, pointing towards King David, because you've got this wonderful story of redemption. But how does the book end? The book ends with a genealogy that lands on David. Ruth and Boaz are David's ancestors, and the story is aiming towards David. So in this framework of thinking about God's covenantal acts and communication, and the covenant then being focused on the king, and especially on David's line, we can see then how Samuel, the books of Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings fit in. They tell the story of these kings, leading to David, focusing on David, and then tracking his sons and grandsons. But then, not too far from David, something covenantally crucial happens. What happens with David's sons? What do they do that has huge covenantal ramifications? Real question, go ahead and shout it out or raise your hand. What do his sons do that has covenantal ramifications? And it turns the story... Yeah, Chuck says they split the kingdom. How did they split the kingdom? What do do his sons start doing? Starting with Solomon. Yeah, they're unfaithful. They they start worshiping other gods. They, They break the covenant with Yahweh. And that changes the trajectory of the the scriptural story because now you know when, when you've got david and especially solomon like if you go read first kings four like it doesn't get any better in jerusalem than first kings four you know the temple gets built the palace is built in the other order the palace goes first and then the temple unfortunately and then and then i mean it it is a glowing review that's one of the verses in first kings four it says every man's under his own vine and fig tree and that becomes a refrain throughout the prophets it is as good as it's going to get. There's covenantal blessing under David and his sons. But then Solomon, his heart is drawn away to worship other gods. And then Rehoboam continues to sin and is, has a, is an abusive leader over the people. And the people get frustrated with him and the kingdom splits. And now they're under the covenantal curses. Now God sends prophets to warn them, you've broken the covenant. And now they, they come to the people and tell them and warn them, When Moses wrote the law, at the end of Deuteronomy, there are blessings and there are curses. And now God sends prophet after prophet to warn them on the basis of Deuteronomy that they are in danger of those covenant curses coming against them. And that covenant breaking, worshiping other gods, persists. Uh, There are occasions, like with Josiah, which we read this morning in 2 Kings 22, when people will turn their heart back to God, but the the disobedience, the idolatry persists. First and second kings especially trace out the wickedness of the kings that leads ultimately to what? What does their rebellion ultimately lead to? Exile, it ultimately leads to exile. And that didn't come out of nowhere. If you read the end of Deuteronomy, that's the warning that 's the curse. the blessing is you get this land, and I 'll protect you, and I 'll take care of you there. The, the curse is if you are unfaithful, if you worship other gods, if you break this covenant you 're going to be taken out of that land, and that 's what happens and so running parallel to the stories of first and second and just to remind everybody, just to remind us all so what the point we're trying to trace out here right is that scripture as it's being written, what we have being written is is covenantal action and covenantal communication, right? So that's the backbone of scripture, is redemptive action, redemptive communication. And so that's what we're seeing here. So running parallel to the stories of First and Second Kings, you know, we have several major prophetic books being recorded like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are concurrent with First and Second Kings. They rebuke the people, they warn them, and also offer them hope for the future. Several prophetic books are written during the exile, like Daniel. And those books call the people to repentance and offer them hope. And then under Cyrus, the people are allowed to return to the land and begin rebuilding. And Ezra and Nehemiah record those events, with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi being written at that time. And then when the remnant returns, there is an attempt to reboot the monarchy, but it fails. And with that failed monarchy comes a silence in God's covenantal communication and redemptive action. There's a There are no prophets for several hundred years. We'll talk about this later. Um, So the trajectory of the Old Testament, to summarize, goes like this. God creates a people in the Torah. He brings them into his place in Joshua. He establishes a king in the land. And he promises an eternal king to David. And then his sons break the covenant along with God's people. The covenant curses come upon the people, and they're defeated and exiled. God speaks words of comfort and hope to them and the prophets calling them to repentance. Reprieve is given in the form of a returned remnant, but that rebuilding is not enough. The temple isn't glorious, and the older generation, remember, they cry, they mourn over that. And the monarchy can't be reestablished, and so it fails. So simply put, the story of the Old Testament is a story of God making his covenant and then fulfilling the covenant blessings and cursings. That's it in a nutshell. God makes his covenant, and then he fulfills the blessings and the cursings. God's action to make the covenant and fulfill those blessings and cursings are recorded in writing so covenantal action is the backbone of scripture and that's actually why we call the two main parts of the bible the the old testament and the new testament testament is another word for covenant so when we open our bibles we're looking either at the old covenant or the new covenant so God's covenantal action is the backbone of Scripture. So the Old Testament then ends with unresolved tension that expects a new covenant. It's promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And Malachi, one of the last prophets, chronologically in the final book in our English Old Testament seems to express an awareness of this tension, saying with his final words, Remember ye the law of, my, of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's Malachi 4 verses 4 and 5. So that's the story of the Bible. Covenantal action is the backbone of how scripture got written. I'll pause here for any questions, and then we'll plow on. All right, we'll keep plowing. So how is the Old Testament recognized and received? So this section addresses some of the questions around canon. Uh, or why we have the books that we have in the Old Testament. As I mentioned before, the Samaritans have fewer books in their Bible. The Roman Catholics have more books in their Bible. Um, So uh, the Old Testament was received and the New Testament. They were received as self-attesting. They weren't picked by leaders or councils. And that's important to say here because some people will say that the church created the Bible, but the opposite is true. God's Word creates God's people. God's people don't make the Bible. We recognize it and we receive it as God's Word. So these scriptures were received as God's word on their own merits, and they were recognized as such very early on. So as we've seen, Moses wrote the first five books, and they were put in the Ark of the Covenant, and they were put in the tabernacle in the temple, and then other books were added to that, like Joshua. Or 1 Samuel 10.25 shows this pattern. It says, Then Samuel told the people the, ma- the manner of the kingdom, and wrote it in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. In the ta- it would have been in the tabernacle. So Greg Lanier, who's written a great book called How We Got the Bible, um, says the overall pattern is that the later inspired writers were acknowledging the divine authority, the scriptural status of antecedent or earlier writings remarkably early. They did not wait for a later counsel. Um, So uh, also we have the divine writings were treated differently. As we've said before, they were the divine writings. What was received as scripture was placed in the tabernacle and then the temple and then later on in the synagogues. Biblical writings were copied and translated and quoted and commented on. And later biblical authors were aware of earlier biblical writings and quoted them. So again, Lanier says, The books received as scripture were on the whole copied far more frequently than others. They were also typically copied onto more durable material. Typically, only scripture books were deemed worthy of commentaries, and the earliest translated efforts in Greek and Aramaic clearly privileged the books received as scripture. So you can just see, people recognize, God's people recognize, there's something different about some of these writings, and they treated them differently. And then, the Old Testament was received in a defined threefold fold form. Um, so again, in our high-level review, I'm not going to belabor this point, but the Hebrew Bible is in a different order and form than our English versions. Our English versions come from the the Greek translation and the Latin translation of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's arranged and organized differently. And I think I have this in the handout if you have that. I'm not gonna work my way through that whole chart, but you can see the the different structure there. But it's worth noticing, right, that the Hebrew Bible had a discernible, identifiable threefold form that we find in the Bible itself, actually, in the New Testament. And that defined form gives us the identity of the Old Testament books. So the New Testament talks about this. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 45, you remember this story. Jesus is resurrected. The disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. It says, And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened, he, their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. So there, when he talks about the law and the prophets, and he calls it the psalms, sometimes the psalms would stand him for the writings, um, that's the threefold form of the Hebrew Old Testament. And all the Jewish people of that time, or even today, would know that. They would recognize this threefold form. And there are also writers outside the Bible that just make really obvious that the, the Bible had a threefold form. Josephus, who's an ancient historian, said, We, he was Jewish, he said, we Jews do not have an innumerable multitude of books, but only 22 books, five of Moses, 13 prophets, and four writings. And he says 22 books, you are like there's more books of the Hebrew Old Testament than that. In the Hebrew Bible, sometimes they would combine some of those books, like the 12 minor prophets. Sometimes they would combine that all down into one scroll. So again, there's many interesting things about that order and form, but... The, the point that I want to make is just that that threefold form was an identifiable set of books. Um, and it includes those books that are listed there in the handout. Um, so I'll pause here, and then we'll talk about the Apocrypha. Any questions or comments so far? Yes, Chuck. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so Chuck was just asking about that phrase uh, that God's people don't create the Bible. God's word creates God's people. And um, the the history of how the Bible was recognized shows that God's people along the way, they're not waiting for a council to come along. Like they were recognizing and receiving God's word. Mm -hmm. Well... I would say God's word creates God's people and God's people just recognize and receive God's word for what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we go through church history, we'll talk a little bit more about that. When we talk, we're going to talk about the Old Testament Apocrypha next, and some of it will address that. Um, and next week, when we talk about the New Testament, Lord willing, um, we'll also talk about it again. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the Apocrypha, because this is interesting. Lord willing, you know more about the Old Testament than the Apocrypha. Um, so what about the Apocrypha? Well, the apocrypha. What does it mean? That word just means obscure or hidden things. And that word, Apocrypha, was popularized by Jerome in the 400s uh, when he published the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Apocrypha, the Apocrypha refers to a specific set of books that were revered among the Jewish and Christian community. So Apocrypha doesn't just mean any old ancient book. Uh, it's referring to a specific set of books. Um, The Old Testament, and there's Old Testament apocryphal books, and there's New Testament apocryphal books, and we're talking about the Old Testament right now. The Old Testament apocryphal books were written between the time of Malachi and Matthew, with the majority being written, so that means between about 400 B.C. and 0, with the majority being written uh, after 200 B.C., so there's about a 200-year period where most of them were written. And uh, we'll talk about the New Testament apocryphal books later. Uh, There's a whole other category of ancient religious literature called pseudepigraphal writings. And pseudo, you can see that in there, uh, means false. So these were books that were written under false names, like First Enoch or the Gospel of Thomas. So in contrast to the Apocrypha, the reason I'm distinguishing here is in contrast to the Apocrypha, the pseudepigraphal books were not revered by the Jewish people or the church. Um, And and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a bit. I have listed for you in the handout the, the list of apocryphal books. I'm not going to read them for you. Uh, I know that you are competent readers. Um, so you can see that list in the handout. How was the apocrypha received? Again, it was generally revered, but disputed as scripture. So some people thought they were inspired. But some people didn't. So most people revered them, but... Uh, there was, it was disputed as to whether these were divinely authoritative or not. So uh, how was the Apocrypha received? What does the Bible itself tell us about it? Well, not much. There is little to no evidence in the Bible that the Jewish people considered the Apocrypha Scripture. Apocryphal books were not part of the Hebrew Bible, so that threefold form that we talked about. The Apocryphal books were never a part of that, um, and that's not disputed. Uh, there is no indication in the Old or New Testament writings that the apocryphal books were received as authoritative as the Word of God. And that's different than so much of the Old Testament. Over 300 times the New Testament writers appeal to Old Testament scripture as authoritative and as divinely inspired. But they never appeal to the apocrypha as divinely authoritative. So a typical scripture quote in the New Testament goes something like this like from Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, which is quoting Psalm 14, verse 1. We don't have anything like that for the Apocrypha. And we have that 300 times plus for many parts of the Old Testament. Now, just because it's not quoted, that doesn't settle the matter. Uh, But it does matter because it is one indicator that the Apocryphal texts were not received as authoritative like the rest of Scripture. Now, a couple of side notes. Jude... Jude quotes from a pseudepigraphal book of Enoch. Now, Enoch was not part of the Apocrypha. But Jude doesn't quote Enoch as authoritative scripture. Jude uses Enoch as an illustration. And Hebrews eleven thirty-five 35 has a likely allusion to a story from the Apocrypha. But again, it's not appealing to the apocrypha as authoritative. It, it's just referring to that story. So inside the Bible, there's there's no indication that the apocrypha was received as authoritative scripture. Now in church history, so I'm going to try to tell the story of the apocrypha in church history briefly, um, because it, it's important for us to understand it. Uh, the story of the apocrypha in church history starts with the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint included the Apocrypha. So this was key because the Septuagint was the main version of the Old Testament that the early church was using. And as Christianity spread, right, it's spreading far beyond Hebrew speakers or Aramaic speakers. It's it's spreading beyond the borders of Israel and Greek was the common language spoken in the Roman Empire in the first centuries of the church. So the Septuagint was very uh, prevalent, very heavily used, and it's a very important book. In the 200s, one of the early church pastors and theologians named Origen, he viewed the Apocrypha as Scripture because it was part of the Septuagint. And he received pushback on this because there were no Hebrew copies of the Apocrypha. But he guessed, based on God's providence, he was assuming, that there must have been a Hebrew original somewhere, even though they didn't have it. A century or two later, Augustine, you've probably heard of Augustine, he accepted the Apocrypha as inspired. Again, because he accepted the Septuagint as Christian scripture, and the Septuagint included the Apocrypha. Augustine said they are to be reckoned among the prophetical books since they have attained recognition as being authoritative, and he also said the same Spirit of God speaks in those books. Well, Origen and Augustine were not the only ones talking about the Apocrypha. Jerome, another early church theologian, who's important because he translated the Old and New Testament into Latin, and uh, which we call that the Vulgate, when he created the Vulgate, uh, he included the Apocrypha, but he did not consider them inspired. He tacked these books on like an appendix to the end of the Vulgate. And he said, the church reads Judith, Tobit, and the books of the Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures. So let it also be read these two volumes, the books of Wisdom and Sirach, for the edification of the people, not to give authority to the doctrines of the church. And in the preface of the Vulgate, Jerome said, the church indeed reads these books, but does not receive them among the canonical books and not for establishing the authority of ecclesiastical dogmas. So you can see very early on in church history, there's a split view about what to do with the Apocrypha and whether these were authoritative or not. And I'll just tell you also upfront early that the, the farther you get from, the, from Israel and the farther you get from the Jewish community, the more these books were accepted. Uh, and you can see that with Augustine, you know, who was in North Africa. Uh, He's using Greek books, and he's not as familiar with the Hebrew Scripture, for instance, as Jerome was. Because when Jerome translated the Vulgate, he was using Hebrew Scripture. Um, So uh, that's a little bit of analysis there, is that just the farther you get away from the Jewish community, the more the Apocrypha is accepted. Church history continues on. Uh, Many Roman Catholics, and this is important to just point out, many Roman Catholics prior to the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent happened in 1546, many roman catholics did not consider the apocrypha to be scripture Um, so as late as the 1400s cardinal Xemenes said that they were outside the canon which the church receives rather for edification of the people than to confirm the authority of ecclesiastical dogmas And, and then it's just one century later that the council of trent said that anyone who did not honor the apocrypha as scripture is anathema right so you can see even in the roman catholic church and going all the way back to the early church of the Roman Catholic Church when they were said, when the Roman Catholic Church said these are scripture. There's a split view the whole time. Luther, uh, of course a reformer, he included these books in his German translation. And by the way, that's why uh, I believe the Amish include uh, the Apocrypha in their copies of scripture because they're using Luther's translation. So Luther included them in his translation, but Luther did not consider them to be inspired. Luther said, The Apocrypha, that is the books which are not regarded as equal to the Holy Scriptures, and yet are profitable and good to read. Uh, John Calvin, another reformer, he outright rejected the Apocrypha, although he was acquainted with them. Many early English versions of the Bible included the Apocrypha as a separate, distinct section. Tyndale's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, and the King James all included the Apocrypha in the appendix, but did not consider them inspired. The Apocrypha was actually part of the King James for 274 years until it was removed in 1885. Today, the Roman Catholic Church views the Apocrypha as inspired and on equal footing with the rest of scripture, and they would use the Apocrypha to establish church doctrine. So that's kind of a history of the Apocrypha. Now I wanna talk a little bit about how to evaluate it um, because we're running short on time. Hopefully I'll have some space for questions. So I think as we evaluate it, we could say these books are important And they're useful, but they're not inspired. So why would we not receive them as inspired? Well, the books themselves have a self-awareness that the prophets have ceased. We don't have time to get into it, but 1 Maccabees, for instance, several times says there is no prophet in Israel. So they they have a self-awareness that the prophets have ceased. And another indication, remember we talked about God's covenant action as the backbone of Scripture, that Malachi, our last book in the Hebrew Old Testament, and then... Uh, the Gospels are directly connected. Remember, Malachi ends saying, a prophet like Elijah is going to come. And then that prophet comes, John the Baptist, right? Jesus says he is the Elijah who is to come. So th- that storyline is directly connected. I also don't think we should receive it because, as I mentioned before, the Apocrypha was never a part of the Hebrew Bible, that threefold form. It was never in there. And those it's clear that that is the form of Scripture that Jesus and the apostles accepted. Um... And uh, the, there are some books of the Apocrypha that are additions, right? So like Esther has an additional chapter. Uh, there's an additional psalm. Um, but those later additions, we don't have any of those in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, those are all in the Greek translations. And in Esther's case, it, it kind of solves a convenient uh, problem, we might say, right? So like if you, if you know about the book of Esther, there's a very important character left out of that book. Who is it? God. Right, but we know it's it's ironically obvious that God is, is orchestrating and taking care of His people. The very first verse of chapter ten of Esther in the Apocrypha says, "God did this." <laughs> so like it, it's pretty evident. Like, oh, like this book is this book. Like, how do we how do we handle this? Oh, I know. Like, God did this. Um, so there are, there are some indicators like that um, that this is probably added maybe as a commentary um, to to help in some of these things. Um. Just to illustrate uh, the category, having a category, we can have a category for important books but not inspired books, right? We, we have things like this. So in our pew, you have two other books in your pew, right? You have the Bible, and you have two hymnals in there. Um, but that doesn't mean that we think that those songbooks are inspired scripture. In my own Bible, right, I've got other things in my Bible. I've got a bulletin. I have the prayer guide. I have a hymn in here. Uh, I have the goals of the church in my Bible, but uh, I don't consider those things to be divinely inspired. So just because something's bound together with a Bible doesn't mean that it's divinely inspired. And that caused some of the confusion in the early church about what to do with the Apocrypha because these books were revered and were bound together with Scripture. How can we use the Apocrypha? And then I'll try to pause if I can. Um, I think we can, we can use the Apocrypha uh, not as a spiritual guide. It is not a reliable spiritual guide. There are doctrinally uh, and practically some unreliable things that are contrary to other scripture, um, which I don't have time to get into, um, but uh, I'm happy to talk with you about that. Uh, the Apocrypha is generally reliable and historical, uh, and we can use it for that. Uh, the Apocrypha also is... Uh, generally encouraging. It has good illustrative material. There are good stories of courageous uh, faith-filled acts uh, that we can read about and profit from. Um, so we can consider it important and we can use it in some ways but not as divinely inspired scripture. And now I'm going to pause. I've said all that I have to say. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left, but if you have a question or two, I'd be happy to answer, happy to answer it. Yeah, Lindsay. Yeah, it was. So great question. Um, So Lindsay's asking about the the rules and regulations basically that the Pharisees or other religious leaders would have had. They did have extensive commentaries, but they did distinguish them. So I I may be getting the name of this wrong, but I think the Talmud would have been an ancient commentary on with rules and regulations commenting on uh, the Hebrew Bible and you can see some of this indicated in the in the Gospels for instance, so the all the debates about divorce You've got two parties that in Matthew 19, and they're asking questions of Jesus or about resurrection. Uh, We can see there's different parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they don't all agree, and they're all writing, and they're all reflecting back. Sometimes they'll use those scriptures. And so there are lots of, we have commentaries that they have written on scripture, but they are distinct. They did set them apart as commentaries. Yeah. Yes, Barry. Yeah, yeah. I don't know percentages. One of the reasons that I quoted the guy that I did, Cardinal Ximenes, is that in the 1400s, I mean, he's a cardinal. He's not just some priest somewhere. Um, so he's, he's pretty high up in the Roman Catholic Church. He also m- created a major translation of the Bible called the Complutensium Polyglot. So He's very well acquainted with uh, the biblical texts. And he has you know rank in the Roman Catholic Church. That's one of the reasons I mentioned him specifically. There were also others. So I don't know the percentages, but it was not a done deal. And we also have to remember too, right, that the reformers aren't popping out of nowhere. I mean, they're coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, So, you know, I imagine, you know, that there's a contingent of those people who would eventually become reformers who, um, yeah, would not have considered those authoritative. Yeah. Yeah, last question, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know the answer to that question. The, the King James has gone through over 400 years, has gone through several revisions, um, and I don't know uh, what led them in 1885 to make that particular decision. Yeah, Good question. Alright, well, I'm going to conclude. I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. If you have children in the the youngest class um, upstairs, they're moving to the young adults room for the service. So if you have children in that kind of three to five-year-old range, um, please help move those kids over to the young adults. I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for your word. I pray you'd help us to treasure it and to treasure you even now as we sing your praises and hear your word preached to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.